theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I want to make a special welcome for a very special young woman who's joining us today, Hindi Markowitz. Thank you very much for coming and her entire fan club who accompanied her here this morning. So, welcome. <clears throat> and may we all learn from you what it means to have vision, real vision. Helen Keller once said, the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is lacking vision. So thank you for teaching so many people how to cultivate vision. <coughs> Today's class is dedicated by Dvorah Ziger in honor of Am Yisrael. Okay, that's a beautiful dedication. What? Yes, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Also dedicated in honor of the Bas Mitzvah of Aliyah Schattenstein this week by her parents, David and Ida Schattenstein and the Schattenstein family. Thank you very, very much. And may you continue to grow with much simcha, health, happiness, prosperity, and enrich yourself, your family, and the world with your special light. Mazel Tov. Also dedicated in the merit of Henya, for a complete and speedy recovery. Amen. The class is also dedicated in honor of the wedding anniversary of Rabbi Yisrael, Yitzchak HaKoyen, and Chani Kaplan on the 11th day of Kislev. May you enjoy many, many long, happy, healthy, prosperous years together. Six years of marital bliss. May they always continue with Abinyan Adeyad. Thank you and Mazel Tov. So there's one source sheet. I think they're on the Bima. You left them on the Bima. Are there more? Okay. If anybody didn't get, it's one page. So please take it from the Bima. We mentioned quite a few times that when people grow up and we learn Chumash and then we learn the Medrash on the Chumash or the Rashi on the Chumash or other commentators quoting Medrash on Chumash, which is very common in in most Jewish schools, people often have a fundamental misunderstanding of how the Medrash functions. We once gave, for example, a whole class about how you know, Basia, the daughter of Parai, comes to bathe at the Nile Delta, and of course she sees a little box in the river, and she sends out Vatish Lachesamasa, she sends out either her maid servant or her stretches out her arm and retrieves the basket. And suddenly the Medrash, the Gemara, the Medrash says it's much more complicated. Her hand, her arm extended many amos, maybe 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet, until it reached the basket and of course she uncovered it and there was little baby Moshe. And uh, as I asked the question, you know, if you went to a river and you want, saw a basket and you wanted to take it and suddenly your hand extended 60 feet, what do you think you would do? You would run pretty fast. You'd run pretty fast, call 911, Hatzalah, whoever it is. Right? Like, it's a beautiful story without it. Like, what, what, what okay, it's another story. The measure is just here to like add, like just make it more dramatic. <laughs> The story itself is so powerful. When you read Medrash, people often have these questions because of a basic misunderstanding. 
that the Medrash somehow imposes some interesting, sometimes far-fetched interpretations on the text. It's really the opposite. And the best example for this was given by somebody, it's like music. I think I mentioned it last week as well. You know, you could sit down by the piano and your, your fingers can hit the right keys and technically play the right song, but it lacks the full resonance and beauty. So you sit down by the piano, as many children do, and you're like, da, 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 da. You remember that one? Or today it's da 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 Wow, Moishi, that was amazing, amazing. What talent in the Jewish world. The tune is accurate. The notes were accurate, the keys were accurate. But then there is the harmony. You know, somebody else sits down at the same piano, and it's a whole different... It's a different resonance. The text of Chumash are like the keys of the song. The Medrash is the harmony. The function of harmony is not to change the song, not to manipulate the song, not to superimpose itself on the song, but to actually bring out the harmony, the depth, the full flavor, the resonance, the oimek <coughs> that may be embedded there in order for the learner, for the student, to be able to experience it. An example with that story, and we discussed this once in a share of Baal is if you were the daughter of Parai, and you would consult somebody, what are the chances of this mission succeeding? Rescuing a Jewish child from the Nile, and raising him in the palace of Parai. Right? Ludicrous is not the word. Imagine a daughter of Hitler, Yemach or Stalin, Yemach Stalin had a daughter, Svetlana. Rescuing a Jewish child in 1943 and raising him in the Burghof. It's, it's, it's beyond ludicrous. You'll die, the child will die. It's not within reach. So when she stretched out her arm, you would tell her, Batya, you're a good girl, you mean well, but it's not within your reach. This is not something you do. <laughs> this hand, or my hand can reach till here. It can't reach a hundred miles down. Some things are beyond reach. I can't touch the moon. I just can't. I maybe want to touch the moon, but I can't. Bringing a Jewish child into Paris Palace is far crazier and more difficult than going to the moon. Because you could go to the moon. <laughs> Today everybody can go to the moon. You just need a couple of dollars. Join Elon Musk, but... If you are planning this, it's something that, that your, hand, your hand can't reach it. And what the, the manager is bringing out the truth of what happened. You should understand what she was doing. And yet what happens indeed is she stretches out her arm, but God, Hashem, has an invisible arm. And His invisible arm attaches itself to your visible arm. And then your arm extends far beyond what you can imagine. And sure enough, Moshe is saved and he grows up in Paris Palace. And we're all here today because of that. Every medrash is that way. It's the harmony of the song. So today I want to study with you another medrash on Parashas Vayishlach. And at the surface, again, it seems, you know, it's interesting, it's, but it seems like, did people have this conversation? Is this literal? Is this conceptual? Is it metaphoric? What is even the need for it? And so forth. 
It's in your first source sheet, but just in order to appreciate it, let's have the background of the story. The background of the story is Yaakov Avinu, after 20 years living in Mesopotamia in a place called Haran, today it's known as Haran in southern Turkey, they actually know where the place is, living by his father-in-law Lavan, building the first Jewish family, ultimately returns to, uh, after 20 years, <coughs> starts the journey back to Eretz Yisrael, back to his father's home, Yitzchak's home. Ya- Yaakov settles with his family at the outskirts of a city, and it's a very famous city, known as Shechem, or as known as Arabic today as Nabalus, and it's ruled by a man named Chamer. Chamer is the overlord, the, the, the commander, the lord. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> he is the governor, the mayor, the ruler, the, the king of the city. Dina, Yaakov's daughter, Dina Dina goes out to see the town, to meet the young women, to meet the girls, it says, to see the daughters of the land. And Shechem, who is the son of Chamer, he is the son of, of the governor, of the ruler, sees Dina, takes a liking to her, he abducts her, and as the Torah says, he violates her, and then he falls in love with her and he wants to marry her. He begs his father, Chamar, who is the man who owns this place, and everyone is subservient to him, please get me this girl as a wife. I want to marry Dina. The Torah says, Yaakov heard the story, he keeps quiet, he doesn't say a word. His children are furious about what happened. All this time, Dina is trapped in the home of Shem. He didn't release her. Once he took her, he abducted her. He kept her in the home of, of his father, Chamar. People often read the story, they don't realize this detail, that she was never returned to her family. Because at the end it says they took Dina, they liberated Dina. So Dina was actually, she remained literally abducted by Shechem and by his father, by Chamar. So they realized they have to rescue their, their sister, <coughs> And uh, Shechem, who abducted her, should be punished. And the story goes on how Chamer and his son come to visit the family of Yaakov Avinu, and they ask them to give their consent to the marriage between Dina and Shechem. Yaakov's sons pretend to take their offer seriously, and they say, (coughs) we will intermarry with you. In other words, we will allow Dina to marry Shechem and all of our families can mingle and do business together and settle together and live together and marry each other. But there's a condition and the condition is that the males have to undergo a bris, a circumcision. Chamer and Shechem bring the proposal to the people of the town and they all agree, which is fascinating. You're talking about adults, you're talking about an age before there was anesthesia and you have a whole town of people, males, adults, agreeing to go through a bris milah because of the pressure of Chamer and Shechem, it's pretty powerful, whether it was a real dictatorship or he managed to persuade them and convince them is not so clear, but they all agree. Now, it would seem from this story that Dina's brothers were planning to attack the palace and liberate their sister. And the brilliance here was that by ensuring that all of the townspeople went through the painful surgery of circumcision, they would be able to overpower 
the people at the palace and liberate Dina. So this was quite a brilliant strategy because the males would be weak. So therefore the possibility of all the townspeople coming to the aid of their chief and killing them and keeping Dina there would be challenged because because of this circumcision they would be weak so they would have easier access into the palace and liberate Dina who was at this point still kidnapped. Anyway, as we know, the story continues. The people agreed with the proposition and uh, in their demonstration of loyalty or fear or love to their prince, they allow themselves to go through this bris. Everything seems to be working according to the plan. Soon Dina will be freed and the family of Yaakov would be reunited. However, the events turn. And that is two brothers decide to take a different route. And basically, Shimon and Levi decide independently, and Yaakov was not consulted upon this, and later they would have an argument about it, that this would not be enough. So on the day, <coughs> on the third day after the circumcision, the people are in pain, they go and they kill all the male adults, inhabitants of Shechem, they then kill the abductor, Shechem, they kill his father, Hamar, and they liberate Dina. Yaakov is upset at their behavior. Yaakov feels <coughs> that the family is now in mortal danger. They justify it. They say, This can't happen. This was a justified act. And there's a debate between Yaakov and his children, and later, even on his deathbed, Yaakov would bring it up again many, many decades later. The commentators debate what their justification to do this was. I understand you're going to Shechem and Hamar to get Dina, but what's the justification to kill the other people? Some say that the townspeople all came to the defense of their leader and they wouldn't let Dina go. In other words, this was an act of self-defense because everybody came to help Shechem and Hamar, and that's why Shimon and Levi killed them. Others argue that Shimon and Levi saw them as sharing in responsibility for the abduction and the rape. They were all accomplices, they were bystanders, they didn't say a word. Whatever the discussions in the Mepharshim at length, what they, Shimon and Levi felt that they had a right to do this, and Dina was liberated. Now, Yaakov did not accept the offer of Hamar and Shechem. He did not want Dina to marry her. Excuse me, I just have... Uh, a problem with my voice, it's a little hoarse. Mm-hmm. Now here there's a fascinating thing, and that is that <coughs> when the Torah describes Shechem and Dina, very uncharacteristically, it uses very, very acute and intense language to describe Shechem's feelings towards Dina. And this is not characteristic because even, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Because even in, 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 in regular legal marriages and relationships that are completely sanctioned, the Torah is very scarce with its emotional vocabulary concerning the relationship. And a noted exception is Shem's feelings towards Dina. And one wonders why the Torah is so expressive. Just to quote a few of the expressions, and we'll soon see the significance of this. It starts off and it says, when Shechem sees Dina, his soul cleaved, from the word dveikas, his soul connected to Dina. 
If that's not enough, he loved the young girl. He spoke to her heart. So you would think, okay, we get the message. When Hamar comes to Yaakov to ask him if his daughter could marry his son, he says, First it's Vaitidbak, Dveikus, and now there's the word Cheshek. Cheshek means deep, yearning, pining, desire, like you have a Cheshek. <coughs> so you have all these expressions. You have the expression of Ava, that he really cherished her. Vayehav Asanar, you have the expression of Dveikus. Vatidbak, Nafshay, Bedina, there's Dveikus. You have the expression of Cheshek, Choshka Nafshay. And then later you have the expression of, if this is not enough, ki chafetz bevas Yaakov. He had this chafetza from the word desire. His heart desires. So you have dveikus, chasheka, chafetza, ahava, all in, in this story of Shechem and Dina. Usually when somebody just fulfills their uh, hedonistic desires, and physical cravings, I'm done. You have a story in Tanakh with Amnon and Tamar, if you remember that story. And after Amnon did what he did, which was extremely immoral and promiscuous with his half-sister Tamar, it says he hated her. He fulfilled his desire and he hated her. With Shechem, it wasn't that way. On the contrary, afterwards he wants to get closer, he wants to keep her, he wants to marry her. Now, if the fact that the Torah says this, it means that there was something, there was something profound there. Yet Yaakov would refuse. Yaakov would not hear about it. Now, in those days, there was not yet a Jewish people versus another people. Everyone who joined, everybody who got married, went through some form of conversion. Whatever conversion meant before Matantayda was a different type of conversion. Would Yaakov have considered this offer? Why did Yaakov completely reject the offer? He doesn't say clearly. On one level, you could say it's very simple. They could not condone how it happened. (laughs) This girl was abducted. This girl was violated. There was no way you can overlook it. It's not like he came to Yaakov Avinu, hey, I saw Dina, I was walking, can I marry her? The Torah says so almost clearly, you know, that they came home from the field. It says, they came home from the field, they were very, very furious. they were very upset, they were very hurt, they were very angry, you don't do this thing. It says Yaakov was quiet, but everybody was very furious. And therefore, <clears throat> it wasn't even a question. They said they would do it just to get everybody circumcised, but which was part of the strategy, as we saw. But essentially, they would never agree. They would never agree to this. Because of what happened. That's what you would think is the explanation. In other words, maybe if it would have happened under different circumstances, and it could work out on a moral level, you know, Shechem could <laughs> behave according to the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noyach, whatever the moral code of Yaakov was at the time, the faith of monotheism, of the of Ramavinu's family, fine. But not under these circumstances. But the Medrash now comes and t- reports a whole conversation that happened between them of why Yaakov would not think of Dina actually marrying Shechem. And this is Medrash Tanchuma Parshas Vayishloch. It's your first source sheet. It records an oral tradition and presents a profoundly strange dialogue between the fathers of the two people involved. The father of Dina is Yaakov, and the father of Shechem, who is Chamer. What was the dialogue? Let's see. Vayar oisa Shechem ben Chamer. Shechem, the son of Chamer, saw her. Vayoymer Shechem el Chamer aviv leymer kachli Shechem begs his father, please get me this girl, I want to marry her. 
He comes to Yaakov, the Pasuk says, and he told Yaakov, I'll give any money in the world, as much nadin you want for Dina, you know, I'll set them up for life, it's going to be incredible. <coughs> a house in Yerushalayim, a house in Switzerland, a house in Florida, even a house in Muncie, wherever you want, Hevron, Beersheva, whatever you guys want, I will take care of you. And here the Medrash, this is the story in the text. But here the Medrash says, Hamar gives an enticing explanation. And he says, I know, Shavram Skena Nasi Hoya. Dina had a grandfather. His name was Avram Avinu. Dina's father was Yaakov. Yaakov's father was Yitzchak. Yitzchak's father was Avram. So Dina's great grandfather is Avram. And he was a Nasi. He was a prince. He was a lord. He was a leader. When he buys the plot for Sarah in the beginning of Chayesara, the Bnei Ches, the family of Ches, say, Nesi Eleikim Ata You're a prince of God among us. He's a Nasi, he's a leader. Vani Nesi Haaretz. And I am also a Nasi. Chamer was the Nasi, the leader, the lord, the governor of the city of Shechem. Isn't that an amazing Shidduch? You know, call, call it Inve Hagefen. Aristocracy with aristocracy. Royalty with royalty. You know, the king of Spain would make sure to make a shidduch with the king of Portugal. That's how history developed. Lots of alliances and marriages and diplomatically and politically happened in marriages where kings and queens brought their families together. Uh Yeah, Shechem is Yisrael. So he says, her Zayda was a Nasi, and Shechem's father is a Nasi. Both lords, both respected leaders. In other words, we both have royal blood, so to speak, flowing through our sinews. This is a perfect match. It's good for the pictures. It's good for the WhatsApp status. It's good for the Shatchanim. It's good for the family. It's good for the culture. It's good for us. So Yaakov responds to his would be Mechutin if he would have him his way, Chamar, who wants to be a Mechutin. And he says, Loi Nasi Nikra. No. Avraham, my Zayda, was not called a Nasi. El He was called an ox. Shenemar, the Torah says in the beginning of Ayera, Ve'el HaBokor, Rats Avraham. Avraham ran to the ox when the three Bedouin guests come to visit Avram Avinu after he circumcised himself, and he invites them to the tent, and he offers them water, and he offers them to take some respite and shade and rest, and he's going to bring them food. It says he ran to the bakar, he ran to the shur, he ran to the ox, and prepared it for his three guests. The Pasuk says, there is a, a lot of grain comes from the might of the ox. Remember in ancient times, before the Industrial Revolution, all the plowing or most of the plowing of the fields happened through the oxen. They would plow because of their strength. So Virav is the grain that grows, is B'Kayach Shoy. This is Avram The Chamar, and you're a donkey. And here he doesn't have to find a Pusuk to prove that Chamar was a donkey because it happened to be his name. Avram Avinu, he finds a Pasuk that he ran to the ox. So he says, my grandfather was an ox. He wasn't a Nasi. You're a Chamar, you're a donkey. There's no plowing with an ox and a donkey together. The Ksiv, the Pasuk says in Kiseitse, 
Dvarim Pchavbeis, Loi Sachroish Beshoir Ubachamor Yachtov. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. When people would plow with animals, so often you can attach to the yoke an ox and a donkey near each other. And they plow together. That's forbidden in the Torah. Just like <coughs> it's a form of kilayim, one of the, the, the hybrids that are forbidden, even though they're not being synthesized in any significant way. They're just working together. But the Torah says, It's a fascinating mitzvah. So this, the Medrash says, is what Yaakov told him. You want, we should do the Shidduch because Avram was a leader and you're a leader. And I'm telling you, my Zayda was an ox. You're a donkey. And oxes and donkeys don't plow together. Now when you read this, it's like the Medrash seems completely incomprehensible. First of all, why is Avram called an ox just because he ran to prepare a cow or a bull for his guests? El Habaka Ratz Avram. Why is he called a shayr instead of a nasi? I mean, if I run to pick up a pie of pizza for, for a guest or for my family, so suddenly my name is pizza? What, what, what's, what's, the, what's the understanding of this? That's number one. Now, the word kamur means a donkey. Okay, people have a lot of names. <laughs> so that means... Avram is an ox, and now suddenly he is a donkey, and you can't, this is his name, and this is what Avram Avinu did. Does that <coughs> mean that he's actually a donkey because of his name? What's those, finally, what's the connection between not plowing with an ox and a donkey as an explanation why Dina and Shechem don't belong together? So here's a classic Medrash. It records a conversation between them. Conversation seems very strange and enigmatic to say the least does this add to the story what is this explaining here we will see again you have the song and you have the full harmony of it the message is not trying to impose a new story it's trying to explain what the issue here was it explains it in a very sophisticated way which gets you thinking One of the greatest leaders of 19th century Hungarian Jewry was a man known as the Ksav Seifer. Ksav Seifer's name was Rabbi Avraham Shmuel Binyamin Seifer. He was born in 1815. He passed away in 1872. And he was the famous rabbi of Preszburg. At the time, Preszburg was under the Austria-Hungarian Empire. Of course, with the First World War, four empires disintegrated, including the Austria-Hungarian Empire in 1914, and today Preshburg is known as Bratislava. He succeeded his father. His father was known as the Chassam Seifer, Reb Moshe Seifer. Many of the Seifers or Schreibers are, this Seifer means a Schreiber, are descendants of the Chassam Seifer and the Ksav Seifer. The Chassam Seifer both led the community in Preshburg. He had a big yeshiva in Preshburg. And when the Chassam Seifer passed away in 1839, his son, Reb Avram Shmuel Binyamin Seifer, the Ksav Seifer, succeeded him as the leader of the community, and he has a commentary on Chumash known as Ksav Seifer. His father's commentary is Chassam Seifer. His father's name was Moshe, so Chidushe Teiras Moshe, and he's Ksav Seifer. <coughs> so he quotes this Medrash, and he gives a, a stunning interpretation to how we should understand it. And he says it begins with a Pasuk in Yeshaya. The prophet Yeshaya, and we read this Haftarah and Shabbos Chazoin before Tisha B'av. 
Isaiah speaks to the Jewish people and he says, and I quote, Yoda Shar Koineu Vachamoir Evus Baalov. An ox knows his owner, and a donkey knows the trough of his master. Avus in Hebrew is a trough. A trough is, of course, a container where you place the water or the food for the animal, and the animal comes over and eats or drinks from the trough. So he says, Yoda Shar. The ox knows Kaineu. Kaineu is its owner, the one who bought it, the one who acquired it, like Kaina, a Kenyan. And a chamer, a donkey, knows the trough of its master. And Yeshaya lament, laments and says, but Ami, my nation, doesn't know not its master and not the trough of the master. So basically Yeshaya is crying. he's lamenting the fact that the Jewish people <coughs> sometimes behave in a way that can be inferior even to the ox and to the donkey because they know their owner or at least they know, they recognize where their sustenance lay. The donkey knows the trough. It knows the trough. And sometimes people can be so open-minded that their brains fall out and they don't know any of this. But notice a subtle distinction between the ox and the donkey. When it comes to the ox, he says, Yada shar The ox knows its owner. When it comes to the donkey, he says, the donkey knows the trough of its owner. Eivaz ba'alav. So you would say, what's the difference? You know your owner, you know the trough. It's a big, big difference. Why does Yeshaya use one expression when it comes to the bull or the cow, the ox, and another expression when it comes to the donkey? Basically, because Yeshaya Hanavi knew <laughs> how the animals function. He was here describing the difference between an ox and a donkey. I don't know if there's anybody here who has grown up on a farm with donkeys and on a farm with Oxen, the old Muncie had quite a few of them. The ox recognizes its owner. It knows who its owner is and obeys his master. The donkey doesn't. But the donkey knows the master's trough. That it knows. It knows Avos <coughs> Ba'alav, the container where the food or the water of the donkey is stored. Since the donkey, like the, all animals, like all living organisms, craves food, and it knows where to get it. So it naturally knows its master's trough because that's where the donkey has its food available. So he may not recognize his master. He may not obey his master. But he knows where his food comes from. He knows Avos Ba'alov. Now, why is this so important? <laughs> the ox is described by the Gemara as Melech, the king of domesticated animals. If you see in the next source, Chagigadaf Yud Gimel Amir Ishlakish, it says, Ashira Lashem Kigoiga. I will sing to Hashem who is exalted above the exalted. The Amar Mar, Melech Shabachayis Ari. The king of the Chayis, the king of the undomesticated jungle animals, is the lion. Melech Shabachayis. The king of the domesticated animals of the behemoths is Shur, the ox. Melech Shabaifus, the king of the birds, is Nesher, is the eagle. For Adam is and the person manages to rule over them. Hashem is above that. Meaning, we have different types of kings. There's the king of the birds, there's the eagle. There's the king of the highest, the undomesticated, the wild beast is the lion. 
The lion is known as the king, the king of the jungle. And the king of the domesticated behemoths is the shur, the ox, the bull. <laughs> this means that the ox is the king. Why is the ox called the king of the behemoths? The answer is, first of all, the ox is one of the strongest animals on our planet. Simply in sheer brute power, the ox is stronger even than a tiger. It's true that if a tiger engages in a battle with an ox, the ox might be defeated because the tiger has a skill as a natural killer. It grows up that way and it hones its skills and also its its agility, its, its, its swiftness. But in sheer brute power, the ox is stronger even than the tiger. That is why throughout history, oxen were chosen to pull very, very heavy loads like plows across fields, wagons across nations, across countries, because their strength is incredibly powerful. So that's why the Gemara says in Chagiga, it's Melech Sheba Behemoth. It's not just another domesticated animal, it's the king. But, despite its power, more than a tiger, it's not an undomesticated rebel. The ox knows its owner. It can be domesticated. In fact, it's considered one of the most domesticated animals. Yada Sher Kainayu. The ox is aware of its owner who takes care of him, who nourishes him, who shelters him, who, <coughs> who protects him. And therefore the ox surrenders to the owner. The ox has a, 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 a subservience to the owner. He dedicates his extraordinary strength to serve his master, to plow his fields, to carry his yokes, and all the burdens placed upon him. So the very powerful, brute strength of the ox is used not to rebel against his own, on the contrary. And that's why even though he's the melech, he's a king, he's considered a behemoth, not a chaya, which is a domesticated animal. That's why the Ksav Seifer says, Avram Avinu is called a shay, an ox. It's not just, we found a name for Avram Avinu. It's representative of a very profound quality. Avram Avinu, was an extremely powerful human being. He was brilliant, he was talented, he was charismatic, he was vigorous, he was passionate, he was a great, great leader. He was an extremely powerful human being. His wisdom and his charisma and his charm and his vigor and his passion and his courage were singular. You read the stories about Avraham Avinu, each one of them depicts another feature of this incredible, colorful, and really gigantic personality, both in terms of of learning and understanding in terms of emotion and conviction and faith and both and even as a simply as a war, as a warrior even as a military commander he fights kings and he fights wars and he fights tribes he was a true leader and he was unstoppable that's why in Parshas Lech Lecha it says he takes on four of the most powerful kings of the time Kedar Laomer and Amrafel and those kings <coughs> and he prevails. He takes on the world and he prevails. The Rambam writes in Hilchas Avodah chapter 1 that Avraham Avinu traveled literally from city to city holding press conferences, what we would call today press conferences in every city or, or, or mass meetings, you know, in the <coughs> where the whole town would come and Avraham Avinu would lecture. The Me'iri writes in his introduction to Pirkei Yavis, Rabbeinu Menachem Amiri, that Avraham Avinu influenced more than half of civilization. Imagine more than half of humanity has, redefi- has been redefined by Avraham Avinu. So you're talking about a person 
not just with the gift of communication and, and depth and conviction and faith, but really an extremely, what you would say in simple English, an incredibly talented, creative and, and, and brilliant man. And yet, like the ox, he saw himself as a servant. He tells Hashem, I am but dust and ashes. All his strength and all his power, he harnessed, he utilized in order to plow the fields of the Rebbeinu Shalom. The world is called Hashem's garden, Basi Legani Kala, Hashem's field, Hashem's orchard, Hashem's pardas. It says in Shashirim, I came back to my garden that's called this world. And Avram Avinu becomes the person who's going to plow it, who's going to make it fertile. He wants to make the earth, the world, a fertile place for growth, for, for, for production, for fragrance. Yada Shari Kainehu. This person uses his incredible power, harnesses it to bring recognition of his master. It says about Avram Avinu, he made Hashem known in the world. He also planted, like an ox produces, he also planted an eshel, a tree or an orchard in Be'eshava. And he called out in the name of Hashem as the God of the world. Where do you see this quality most? Says the Medrash, when he runs to the ox to feed the three Bedouin guests. Think about it. Usually a man of such stature. He's called Nesiyelikim, a prince of God. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of power. He was respected. He was... People were in awe of Avram Avinu. Nesiyelikim atabasecheinu. Usually you don't run to the ox yourself in order to feed three guests, three Bedouin guests who are strangers. <coughs> you have servants and you delegate you're a nice person. So you delegate. You ask them to serve the guests. Not only does Avram Avinu go himself, you would think it's below his dignity, but it's not. In other words, Avram Avinu never becomes a person with ears about him. Not only was it not below his dignity to go serve them or be with them, but he runs to the ox himself. Avram. Like the inno- with the innocence and the vigor and the zest of a child, without the self-consciousness, without the self-inflation, without the ego. He was a towering powerhouse, this person. But he had the wholesomeness, the humility, the simplicity of a child saying, sure, I'm happy to do it. I don't have to send other people, even though I can afford it, and there's people who want to do it, and he has many, many servants. There was no vanity in this person. Why? Because he was like a shur. What does it mean he was like a shur? All of his extraordinary power was channeled to serve his master. He saw himself as an ambassador of Hashem in this world, as a manifestation of Hashem's light in this world. So all of his power and talent and charisma, El Ram, he could just run to the ox to be there for these three guests. Comes Yaakov Avinu, says the Ksav Seifer, and he tells Chamer, you're comparing yourself to Avram. Avram was aristocracy, and you're aristocracy. So he says, let me explain to you the difference. (laughs) My grandfather was an ox. You're a donkey. He's not trying to insult him. Chamar, chamar, shar, shar. He's actually, the manager's bringing out the nature of the, Jacob is trying to convey to him. The donkey doesn't know about the master. 
The donkey knows one thing. The donkey knows about the truff. Chamer Evus Ba'alav. Sure, you're a leader. Chamer, you're a big leader. All of Shechem is under your governance. Sure, you're a powerful man. And your son Shechem is also a powerful person. But how do you and Shechem, your son, see their power? How does Shechem see the meaning of nobility, of dignity? What does he do with his power? How does he use it? He sees it as an opportunity to run to an ox to feed guests. Or he sees it as an opportunity to control, manipulate, abduct, violate, put his hands on whatever he craves without any distinction, without any humility, without any sensitivity, without any moral dignity, without any moral boundaries. What do you do with your power? That's the question. Is my power an invitation to be able to humbly serve God with all my power and charisma? Or is it an invitation to be able to manipulate and exploit? So Yaakov Avinu says, don't confuse your aristocracy, your power, your dignity, your nobility with my grandfather's dignity and nobility. Yes, both princes, both of you. Both of you men of power and strength, of determination and prowess. But your world's apart. The donkey and the ox have a different ethos in how to work. <coughs> what did Lincoln say? Nearly all men can withstand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Give him power. What do people do with power? For my grandfather, Avram Avinu, power was a tool. It was a tool, it was an incredible tool to serve Hashem, to serve humanity, to bring the world to a more dignified place. The ox knows its master. Yoda Shar Kainehu. Avram Avinu saw all of his natural charisma and all of his blessings and his depth and his personality and his successful leadership skills as a calling, as a vocation, as a destiny to lift up, to change the world. He viewed his power as a responsibility, not as a privilege, as a calling to accomplish what others may not be able to. In other words, he used his power to reveal in each person their own power. He used his power to show each person how they are powerful and they have power within themselves. You, Chamar, you're a donkey. You think of the trough, only of the trough, not of the master. There's a difference. The trough is what's in it for me. The trough is how am I going to use my master? How am I going to utilize my master for my benefits? You look at your power and you say, wow, this is not about my master. This is not about a gift. It's not about a privilege. It's what opportunity is here for me to be able to eat whatever I want, to be able to enjoy whoever I want, to be able to do whatever I want without anybody having the ability to stop me. You see power as a tool to loot, to steal, to abduct, to violate, to control, and to get away with murder or violation, literally. So he says, the donkey and the, the, the ox can't plow together. You know why? Because they have different natures. It's cruel to put an ox near a donkey. In fact, the ox is much more powerful than the donkey. The ox has a different level of power than a chamer. It's unfair to ox, ax, ax, ask, ox, sorry. It's unfair to ask the donkey to keep up with the work ethos of the cow and the plow. 
The Torah demands sensitivity even to a cow and a donkey on the plow field. The donkey is going to feel left out. The donkey is going to feel like a loser. There's an amazing Gemara in Yerushalmi. It says, Lama Nikrashmai Nevel. One of the, Halaluhu Benevel. What's a navel? A navel is a, uh, a uh, L-Y-R-E. No. A liar. A liar. That's how you pronounce it? So why is it called novel? You know what the word novel in, in Hebrew means? Like novella, uh, something that's degenerate. A novel b'rishus Why would you call a liar novel? You know what it is, Mirshami says? It says, it's so beautiful, it makes all the other instruments feel ugly. So that's why it's called ugly. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Shemenabel, kol klei zemer acherim. They all feel left out. So it becomes that. Because there's two types of people with power. There's a person with power who makes everybody feel powerful. There's a person with charisma who brings out the charisma in people, the light in people. And then there's people with power who basically know how to control, how to manipulate. It's a whole different experience. The donkey is weaker than the ox. So you don't plow the donkey and the ox together. Because Kuni says even more, and it's so interesting, an ox chews its cud because it's kosher. The donkey is, of course, not kosher, which is also one of the differences between Avram and Hamar. Avram is powerful, it's kosher. Hamar is a different type of animal. <coughs> but it doesn't chew its cud. A kosher animal has four stomachs. So when an ox or a sheep or a goat or a giraffe or an antelope, kosher animals, when they eat, you'll see they don't stop chewing. If you go to a farm and you watch a sheep, it looks like lunch continues for many hours. It doesn't. It gets digested by us, it often, by people sometimes it continues for many hours if there's access to a pantry. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. But especially in this show, Baruch Hashem. But uh, <coughs> when, you chew, when an animal chews its cut, it brings the food down into one stomach, it spits it out, it regurgitates the food, goes into a second stomach, spits it up again, regurgitates it, it's called mylagera. A donkey doesn't do that. So the Mepharshim say, the owner gives lunch to the ox and to the donkey together. Then they go out to plow. The donkey is plowing. The donkey takes a look at its partner. And what does it see? The ox is chewing. The donkey never learned about Malagata. The donkey never learned how kashos works. So the donkey thinks that the ox is getting better treatment. <laughs> it got a second lunch. It got a third lunch. It got a fourth lunch. And the donkey feels jealous and infuriated. So Titus says, you're not allowed to do that. You have to respect the boundaries and the identity of the ox, and you have to respect the boundaries and the identity of the donkey. So the point that Yaakov Avinu is making here is, the two don't work on the same level. Therefore they can't plow. So spiritually speaking, Dina and Shechem don't belong together. (laughs) They're not soulmates. This marriage is not going to succeed. One belongs to the tradition of Avram Avinu, the tradition of Elah Bokarats Avram, the tradition of Aksen, and the other one, belongs to the tradition of donkeys. And therefore, this marriage is going going to fail. And here it goes to the next step. And that is, Dina ultimately, the Medrash, a fascinating Medrash, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar brings it, that Yosef HaTzadik married in Egypt a girl named Asnas. Who was Asnas? <coughs> she was raised by Bas by, by Tifera, but it says in Medrash, very, very fascinating story that Dina gave birth to a child after her connection with Shechem. And this child was Asnas. And 
Asnas was having a very hard time being raised in Yaakov Avinu's family with his mother who was Dina and his father who was not Jewish. His father was Shechem. And Yaakov sent Asnas to Egypt. And ultimately, there's a whole story how Yaakov put a note on her jewelry that she is from the family of Yaakov. And when Yosef HaTzadik was appointed Prime Minister of Egypt, it was like a ticker day prayed. It says that he went through the whole Egypt and everybody was throwing jewelry at him and gifts at him. Everybody was in awe of Yosef. And he saw this note, I'm from the family of Yaakov Avinu. And this was Asnas. And ultimately Yosef married Asnas, who was the daughter of Dina, and who was the daughter of Shechem. So basically Yosef and Dina, of course Dina was a son of Leah, Yosef was a son of Rachel, but they had the same, the same, uh, <coughs> the same father. So Asnas was Yosef's, I don't know if there's a word, half-niece, but somewhat of his niece, because she was Dina's daughter. How is Yosef described? So when Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about Yosef, will the Yosef amai the tribe of Yosef? When, when, uh, when Yaakov Avinu and Moshe Rabbeinu speak about Yosef, how is Yosef described? Yosef is called Bchor Shoiroi. Bchor Shoiroi means he's an ox and has the beauty of an ox. That's so interesting. Yosef marries Asnas, who is the daughter of Dina. Dina comes from Avram Avinu, and he says she's a shur, she's from the tradition of a shur, not of a chamer. Now Yosef was also a symbol of strength and power. Yosef was a tremendous leader. He endures tremendous agony and humiliation in life, but he rises to become the prime minister of the superpower of the time and save the whole world from hunger. What does Parai tell him? Nobody should lift up their hand or leg, their arm, their feet or hands in Eretz Mitzrayim. Only the throne will be greater than you. This is what Parai tells Yosef. So he is the ultimate ox, the ultimate man of power. But what does Yosef do with all of his power? What does he do with all of his power? He saves the world from hunger. He forgives his brothers who hurt him so badly. He creates a future for his family and his people. He introduces monotheism, divine awareness into the Egyptian culture and society. So he is fitting for the progeny <coughs> of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and of course, of Dina. So therefore, <coughs> excuse me, what do we see from here? What do we see from here? What's, what's really the Medrash telling us? Yaakov Avinu is not saying Avram is not a leader. He's saying he's a Nasi, but a different type of Nasi. There's a Shur and there's a Chamer. Every person has tremendous power within them. Every person. Some people are powerful in different ways. You know, you'll say about somebody strong as an ox. Whether it's physical or emotional or psychological or spiritual or financial. (coughs) Some people were blessed and each person in their own way was blessed, but some people have unique skills, unique talents, unique creativity, unique charisma, unique opportunities, unique wisdom, leadership skills, administrative skills, people skills, social skills, emotional intelligence, EQ, IQ, intuition, vision, iron will, etc. In some versions of religion, people feel that they have to curtail their power. They have to suppress power. 
power is dangerous. You have to suppress vigor. You have to stifle strength because power could be the source of, of evil and abuse and, and corruption. But what the Medrash is teaching us here is that there's a very different approach. The question is how you see power. You know, very often <coughs> people think that their deepest fear is that they're inadequate. People's deepest fear is, if you would really know me, what would you think of me? Uh, I feel guilty, I feel shame, I feel like a nobody, I'm insecure. That is certainly a fear of people. You know, what happens if you're going to see my skeletons and my ghosts and my demons and I'll protect myself and make sure nobody ever sees them and hopefully even I won't see them, at least consciously. I'll tell myself I don't see them. And people invest a lot of power, a lot of <laughs> mental energy in that. But there may be a deeper fear in people. The deeper fear is not that I'm inadequate. A deeper fear in many people is that we are too powerful, that we're powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that sometimes frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be such a luminary? Who am I to be fabulous, talented, successful, gorgeous, brilliant, influential? Who am I to have an amazing marriage? Who am I to have an amazing relationship with myself, with my loved ones? Who am I to really make a difference? I sometimes fear not my darkness. I sometimes fear my light. Often people are afraid that their light is too powerful. You're going to shine too much. You're going to be too happy. Especially in some cultures, you're going to get an eye in horror. People are going to get jealous. A woman came over to me once after a class and she says, bad things are happening. I said, what? She says, I'm in such a good mood this week. I said, why is that bad? She says, because if I'm in a good mood this week, it means that next week... Oy vey, am I going to fall? If I'm being feeling so good this week, it must be that tremendous curses are coming my way. I'm like, <laughs> why? Why do you have to think that way? But sometimes people are so afraid of, of of their light. Unconsciously, I may undermine myself and go back into a restrictive Mitzrayim, into an restrictive Egypt, because somehow it's more familiar. If I could stay high in hiding, if I could stay in my closet, if I could stay suppressed, somehow it gives a comfort. But the truth is, <coughs> the truth is, we don't help anybody by suppressing our own light. On the contrary, the more you shine your light, the more other people have permission and are empowered to shine their light. So Avram Avinu, Yaakov was saying, was an ox. An ox is a king. He's Melech Sheba Behemus. In other words, how does Yaakov choose to define Avram Avinu, his grandfather? You would think it's a somewhat of an insulting definition, but he wants to bring out a point. Avram Avinu was a king. He was powerful. He wasn't a pushover. He didn't find God because he was meek. Because he was downtrodden. Because he was a, a secure, insecure. Because he was afraid. Because he was frail. So he needed a king in heaven to protect him. Mark said, religion is opium for the masses. It's an opium. A person needs opiums to, to, to silence them so they have a religion. That wasn't Avramovin. On the contrary, he was one of the most powerful people alive. He didn't seek it because he was weak. You know, there was there were great people who loved to make fun of religion, and they would say it's good for weak people. They're miserable in this world, so you promised them my Haba. It's a way of of priests and kings and and religious people to control the masses. Promise them the next world, and everything is good. But Avramovin was the opposite. <coughs> he was an extremely successful person. It's his power that motivate him to seek truth. 
that motivated him to understand what's the truth of reality. The greatest of our spiritual giants were people who were extremely powerful people. Their intelligence was fully developed. Their emotions were fully developed. They weren't crushed. And then they understood that the truth of life is that you're a conduit. You're a conduit for divinity. You're a conduit for infinity. You're an ambassador of love, light, and hope. There was a dictator who once wrote, he said, what do they say? Power corrupts. Absolute power is kind of neat. If somebody say, they said that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, does that mean that absolute powerlessness makes you pure? But the truth is, that's not the Jewish approach. Absolute powerlessness makes you pure. The truth is, the more power a person has, the more good a person can do. The more you recognize the light, the more you become a source of light and inspiration to yourself, to your house, to your loved ones, to your children, to, to family members, to community members, and, 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 and across the world. If Hashem gives a person a talent, a skill, a power, it wasn't there in order to stifle it. On the contrary, it was there in order, like Avram Avinu, There's an amazing story in Gemara, and your next source sheet, Menachas Dav Kuftes. Amr Rabbi Ben Yeshua ben Prach was one of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people during the second base during the second base Hamikdash. Yeshua ben Prach, according to the Gemara, was also the teacher of Yeshu, of uh, of Oisia Ish of Yoshka. The Gemara says in the Sanhedrin <coughs> and in Saita. Amr Rabbi Yeshua ben Prach, Yeshua ben Prach, he said, "Betchil in the beginning, Kolo Eimer, whoever told me Aleila, I want you to assume leadership, and he kaifsei v'noisten lefnei hari." I would have him bound up and put in front of a lion. Somebody who tells me I should become a leader. He basically wants to kill me. Ata, now, once I'm a leader, somebody who tells me to let go of it, I pour a pitcher of hot water, a hot kettle on him. Look at Shaul. He fled royalty. He said, no. Once he became a leader, now any suspicion, he wanted to kill David because he thought David wants to usurp the leadership. This is a very interesting quote. What is he saying? He's describing a very powerful idea. Before I became a leader, if you would tell me, go become a leader, I want to put you in front of a lion. In other words, I see you as my brutal, as my, my brutal enemy. You want to curse me, make me a leader. As they say, you want to destroy somebody's life, give them a leadership position in the community. Don't worry, they won't have days, they won't have nights. You don't have to put them away, make them a leader. Rashi says, Yeshua told Moshe, Adoni Moshe Kloim, Elder and Medad, Kloim. So Rashi says, Make them a leader of the community and don't worry, they'll be dead. You don't have to kill them, they'll kill themselves, everybody else will kill them. It's fine. So he says, somebody who tells me become a leader, I want to put him in front of a lion. Once I took the leadership position, now I'm going to pour a hot kettle on, of water. Somebody who tells me to go down. What, what, what is he trying to say? You would think once you taste, once you taste it, it like becomes, <laughs> becomes addicted. It's like eating, you know, uh, one piece of potato chip. You know, you ever tried? I mean, I try always, but it doesn't work. Like one tiny cookie, one little piece of chocolate, uh, I envy the people who cut chocolate into eight pieces, one thing, and eat one piece. Usually it goes one piece to another piece. Mitzvah, Gereris. Mitzvah, right? And the opposite. <coughs> so you would think that he, what he's saying is, 
once you taste it, you can't say goodbye to it. That's not what he's saying. Why can't you say goodbye to it? What he's saying is something else. Leadership arouses a very deep chord in the human psyche. It's called malchus. There's a quality of nobility in a person. If a person never tasted it, they never tasted it. They do, it creates a certain identity shift. Somebody in the position of malchus, something changes genuinely in their personality. It's a certain a fuse of the human soul is ignited, and when you're elevated to that position, leaving it is almost like a betrayal of a very deep place of your soul. It's not petty arrogance. You have people that it's petty arrogance. I have to remain a leader at the cost of everybody and everything. But that's not what Rishul and Prachi is saying. It's not addictive because of vanity, but also due to spirituality. Because in the ultimate scheme of things, every person has malchus. Every person has incredible aristocracy. <clears throat> and when that fuse, that note, comes out in your soul, it has tremendous power. The person becomes a conduit of Hashem's malchus. And become a conduit of Hashem's malchus. <coughs> it's hard to leave go because it's like a very deep shift in the personality. So Hashem wants Avram to be strong as an ox and then to harness it as a conduit for the divine. But here, it goes one step deeper. And this is where it comes full circle. And here we come to a teaching of Reb Shimshin Astrapolar. Reb Shimshin Astrapolar was one of the greatest Kabbalists of Poland. He was killed in the Xeris Tachvetat, 1648-49, Bogdan Chbolonetsky, Kozak pogroms. And he has a sefer called Likute Shashanam. And over there, Reb Shimshin Astrapolar says something <coughs> very heavy. And he says, whenever you see someone desiring something very, very deeply, and it's holy, they're desiring holiness, it's never just negative. There's something very deep inside of them that wants it. So he says, Shechem had a very deep craving for Dina, this was not just vanity. Dina was a beautiful girl, Shechem got excited about her, it was just external, it was superficial, there was nothing real about it. Huh? Dina? <coughs> so Pshimshan Astapala says that Shechem had within inside his soul he had, you know, souls are connected in very mystical ways because everyone comes from other Mauritian's soul. Shechem had within his soul the soul of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva felt Dina's purity and holiness. So the desire of Shechem to Dina was on a dual level. On a conscious level is just a young man who has this deep desire and longing to a young woman. On a spiritual level, it was Rabbi Akiva's soul inside, trapped inside of Shechem, craving this connection with Dina. That's what Shimshon Astapala writes. And he says that's why <coughs> right after the story, the story of Shechem goes through the whole chapter. 30, uh, what is it? 30, chapter 34 of Ayishlach. It's 31 Psukim. And at the end of the story, chapter 35 starts, Vayoymer Elikim al Yaakov, Hashem tells Yaakov, Kum alei beis el v'shevsham. Come up and go to Bet el 
and sit there, dwell there, live there, and build a Mizbeach for Hashem who appeared to you when you ran away from Esau. So Shimshon Astapola says, why is this the first commandment that Hashem gives Yaakov right after the story? So he says, take a look at the words. You see? The Rosh Tevis of these words is Akiva. Yaakov begins with a Yud. Kum begins with a Kuf. Alei begins with an Ayin. Beis, Kale. So you have Ayin, Kuf, Yud, Vez Aleph. Hashem said, now you have Akiva. Now you can go. Kum Alei. We, you finished doing what had to be done here. Because when Shechem was killed and the soul was released, Rabbi Akiva's soul was also liberated. So now you have Rabbi Akiva, you can go, you can move on, it's good. Kumale, you're done. You didn't end up in Shechem here, Stam. This didn't happen with Dina just by mistake. It was just a horrible tragedy. Something had to be achieved. You never know how things work in the world. So now Rabbi Akiva's soul came out of its captivity Dina went into captivity, not for her own sake. She went in to bring Rabbi Akiva out from captivity. There's no way you could bring somebody out of prison if you yourself don't go in there. I can't sit in an ivory tower and say, hey, come out. You go in, I go in. So Dina went into that place, Vatetse Dina, and she brings out Rabbi Akiva, so to speak. So now, Kumale Beisel, now you have Rabbi Akiva, you can go. And Rabbi Shemshin says, that when Shechem speaks to Shimon and Levi with his father Chamoir, he says, take a look at the next source, Lamadalad he says, Charge me whatever you want, but give me this girl as a wife, says the Pshimshan Astrapolar. He says, you know, he saw the Torah in this way. He says, take a look at the words, take a look at the end of each word. The last letter of Utnu is Vav. The last letter of Li is Yud. The last letter of Hanara is He. The last letter of Leisha is He. That's Yud and He and Vav and He. That's Hashem's name. Yud and He and Vav and He. Why? Because he's not just looking for Dina as a girl. Utnu Li there's a Shem Havaya here. There's a divinity here. There's a godliness here. At the end of the word, which means hidden, at the end of the word, in my subconscious, I'm actually look, looking for Havaya. But there's one word that separates it, S. S. Says Yabshim Shnastapala, the Gemara says, the Rabbi Akiva dedicated his life, Lidrosh kol esim shebetayra. He taught the meaning of every S in Torah. In fact, there was a man named Shimonam Sunni who explained every S, because S in Hebrew looks like it's superfluous. Like an extra word. He could have done without the S. So he explained every S. And then he came to the words, and he didn't know what to say. And Rabbi Akiva said, A real Talmud Chacham who's completely one with Hashem and dedicated to Hashem, you fear Talmud Chacham. So Rabbi Akiva darshaned all the S's, he fixed the S. Because the S separated Hashem's name. Utnu Li is Vav and Yud. Hanar Elish is Hey Hey. And Shechem has the S that separates the two. Because what was the issue in Shechem? There was a dissonance. There was a separation. He wasn't in touch with the flow of Yud Kevavke in him. That's the difference between the donkey and the ox. Yadashar Kineyum. So Rabbi Akiva 
who was part of that soul, he darshaned all the essen, he fixed the essen and he revealed what is the real meaning of the S, showing that the S is never a separation. The S is a connection. Rabshimshanastopolis says, take this a step further. It says in Gemara Psachim Test, the next source, Tanya Omer Rabbi Akiva, Kishahayisi Amaoritz, Amarti, Mi Tenli Chatamid Chacham, Veeneshchenu Kechamor. Rabbi Akiva said, when I was an Amaoritz, when I was ignorant, I used to say, Give me a Talmud Chacham, and I will bite him like a donkey. Omru Loy Talmud of Rabbi Amor Kekelev. They said, Rabbi, why wouldn't you bite him like a dog? Why like a donkey? So Rabbi Akiva said, because they don't bite the same way. A donkey breaks your bones. A, a dog doesn't. What's Rabbi Akiva saying? When I was in Amaretz, I hated Talmidei Chachamim so much. I said, I'll bite him like a donkey. So Rabbi Shimshon Astropolis says, when he says, when I was an Amaretz, he doesn't only mean, because Rabbi Akiva didn't learn until 40. When I was an Amaretz means when I was one of the nations of the world, an Am, I was part of the nation of Haaretz, I was part of Chamor. I was part of Shechem, who was a son of Chamor. So when I would see a Talmud Chacham, of course I would bite him like a donkey. I was the donkey. I was the son of Chamor. Kshayisi Amaretz, when I was still, my soul was embedded in the heart of Shechem, the son of Chamor. I would say, in a Shechem of Chamor, that was the clip of Chamor. That was Rabbi Akiva. But now something happens to Rabbi Akiva. What happens to Rabbi Akiva? And here it's very interesting. The Gemara says in Ksuvas, it's your next source, Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. Like Yaakov was a shepherd. In fact, Akiva is the say, has the letters of Yaakov in it. And it says Akiva, Rabbi Akiva was connected to Yaakov. His wife was Rachel. Like Rabbi Akiva's wife, like Yaakov's wife was Rachel. So it says that Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd and he was completely illiterate. He was completely unlearned. He didn't even know Aleph Beis. And his boss was Kalba Savua. Right? Kalba means a dog, a satiated dog. Why would you call anybody a satiated dog? It says whoever went into his house hungry like a dog came out satiated. It's not easy to satiate a dog. In other words, he fed people tremendously. He had unbelievable amounts of money. And the Gemara says... Rabbi Akiva was a simple shepherd, but his daughter, Kalba Savua's daughter, saw Rabbi Akiva was tsanua, he was modest, umayli, he was a good person. So she said to him, if I marry you, will you go learn? Rabbi Akiva said, yeah. So they made a private wedding, and Kalba Savua's daughter married Rabbi Akiva, and she sent him to learn. When Kalba Savua heard about it, he excommunicated his daughter and his son-in-law, and he banned them from enjoying even one penny of his, of his wealth, all of his assets. He was one of the richest Jews of the time, because his daughter married uh, this, this shepherd. His daughter was supposed to marry Krem Dala Krem Dala Krem. So that's what the Gemara tells us. Toysfus asks a question there. What does it mean he was modest and so kind when he told his students, I would have bit Talmidei Chachamim like a donkey? That's not so modest and that's not so kind. You bite people like, I want to bite them like donkeys? What does that mean? So Toysfus answers, you have it in your sources, It's not because he hated Talmidei Chachamim. He felt that Talmidei Chachamim were arrogant people. He felt that Talmidei Chachamim hated the simpletons. 
What was bothering Rabbi Akiva was he was his Edelkite. Rabbi Akiva was a refined person. That was, it's not that he hated them personally. He hated what they did to people. He couldn't stand, he felt that there was this haughtiness and this arrogance in them. And they were dismissive. And as Taisva says, they wouldn't touch them, they wouldn't get close to them. They felt they were Tameh. And this bothered Rabbi Akiva. He felt this ear of, 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 of narcissism, of self-centeredness, of egotism, using the Torah as a tool for arrogance. It drove Rabbi Akiva crazy. So Taisva says he was actually very modest. He was a very kind person. And this feeling to Tamid HaKam that was so negative came because he felt that they were abusive. They were dismissive. This was Rabbi Akiva's story. <coughs> Excuse me. Now something else happens. Rabbi Akiva becomes one of the greatest of the generation because of his wife. She marries him, she sends him to learn. He's there 12 years, another 12 years. He comes back with 24,000 students. The students meet his wife and they're like, who is this woman coming out to greet him? And she says, he says, Shaliva Shalachem. Shalahu, everything I have, everything you have, really belongs to her. What happens is, ultimately, Rabbi Akiva would be captured by the Romans. And the Gemara says in Brachas, they executed him, and he was saying Krishma. And as he was saying Krishma, Yotza nafshe be'echad. His soul went out when he said the word Echad. So the Rabshimshin Astropolis says something very, very powerful. He says, when you look at Shechem's love to Dina, you have incredibly powerful expressions. You have the word Ahava, Vayehav Esanara, he loved her. You have the word Chafetza, Chafetz Babas Yaakov, he desired her. You have the word Chasheka, Chashka Nafshei. And you have the word Dvekos, Vatidbak Nafshei Bedina. So he says, Rabbi Akiva took all of this and he redefined it in his Avaidus Hashem. Yotza nafshei be'echad. Echad is an acronym of three words. Ava, chasheka, chafeitza, dveikos. All the expressions that are used only by Shechem and Dini, you don't have it anywhere else. Yaakov loves Rachel. Yitzchak loves Rivka. Avram loved Tzara. But you don't have these expressions. It says Yitzchak loved Rivka. It says Yaakov loved Rachel. By Shem, you have all this. You have Ava, you have Dveka, you have Chasheka, you have Chafet, it's all Echad. So Yotza Nafshe Be'echad. Really, the Ava, the Dveka, the Chasheka, externally it was just a boy, Shem Tadina. Internally, there was a soul of Rabbi Akiva there. And he harnessed it, all this Chasheka, Dveka. Rabbi Akiva lifted it up, he sublimated it, and he connected it with the Rebbeinu Shalom, with Hashem. And the Gemara says, Abbaskal came out and said, Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, Sheyatza Nishmascha Be'echad. His whole soul went out in Echad. And what does it mean his whole soul went out in Echad? Rabbi Akiva lifted up all this passion and he revealed that really the passion of Shechem on a deeper level was the passion of Rabbi Akiva, Tnu Liasanare Leisha Tayutke Vavke. Because the soul is essentially divine and spiritual. It's one with Hashem. But often it becomes camouflaged or, or eclipsed with layers and layers and diff- of different passions that become like protectors or shells or husks that don't allow me to really align my passion with my truest passions. 
So Rabbi Akiva's soul, Yotza the first nefesh went out by Shechem. Shechem was killed. And now it was a second time, Be'echad. All these three things were now completely aligned with their source. In fact, there were 24,000 people in Shechem. They all went through a bris, 24,000 people. And it says in Kabbalah, these 24,000 people were reincarnated in the 24,000 people of Shevet Shimon who were killed in a plague when Zimri and Cosby had relations. So it says in Kabbalah that Zimri was a Gilgal of Shechem and Cosby was a Gilgal of Dina. That's why they also desired each other. But then still there wasn't the ultimate Tikkun. And then Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students. And the 24,000 students were a reincarnation of the 24,000 people of the tribe of Shimon from the 24,000 people of Shechem. And Rabbi Akiva was a Gilgal of Shechem who led these 24,000 students. And these 24,000 students was that reincarnation. And it says that ultimately Dina and Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva <coughs> married, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of his life, Rabbi Akiva married a woman known as the wife of Turnus Rufus. The whole story in Adarim, she was, Turnus Rufus was a Roman general and his wife ultimately converted and Rabbi Akiva's wife passed away. Rabbi Akiva married Turnus Rufus. So it says in Kabbalah that this was the Gilgal of Dina and Shechem coming back together because Rabbi Akiva was connected to Shechem. It happened in a few times. Dina and Shechem, there was something deep, but it wasn't ready. It wasn't ready for a marriage. You first have to do a lot of work. Zimri and Cosby was the next stage, but it wasn't ready yet. And then Rabbi Akiva and his wife, was they, they were ready for it. And the 24,000 students, what was their challenge? They were great scholars, but there was a sense of arrogance. There was a sense of vanity. You couldn't respect other people. The Torah becomes a tool for arrogance. What's the difference between the ox and the donkey? The ox is, he knows his master. The donkey is just looking for the trough. Yes, Hamar, you're a leader, you're powerful. But there's vanity in your power. Power corrupts. There's no humility in your power. So the 24,000 people of Shechem ultimately are sublimated in the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva himself, though, we see, what makes him upset about the Talmud Chachamim? Why does he want to bite them like a donkey? Because he feels arrogance. His wife Rachel then, what did she see in Rabbi Akiva? She saw in him the future of Torah because he was modest, he was kind, but he didn't know how to learn. If he would now go to learn, so here you would have the ultimate teacher of Torah with tremendous humility. And that's indeed what happens. Rabbi Akiva who says, becomes the paradigm of humility. He's also the greatest leader of his day. But he's not a chamer. <laughs> he's not looking for the trough. He's looking for the master. His whole life, he tells a student, I just wanted to say, and fulfill it. And on his death, by his death, he said, now I do, I'm doing it, do you want me not to do it? His whole life was Kabbalah's oil, Malchus Shemayim, like Avram Avinu. That's the sense of the Shur versus the Chamer. So his wife says, you're the one who has to go learn. You're the Tzanua, you're the modest one. You're the kind one. You're going to be able to create this paradigm of Torah leadership that is filled with love 
and filled with sensitivity and filled with humility, understanding that power is a privilege. It's not mine. Everyone is one with infinity. I'm an ambassador. Your power, the more powerful you are, the better it is, because it's Hashem's power. The more glorified you are, great. It's God's glory. The more talented you are, great. If there's a dissonance, now the question is, who am I, who am I not? Should I be embarrassed? Should I not be embarrassed? But when the person realizes that I'm a conduit, so then the dveikas, the chasheka, the chafetza, the ava, alef, ches, dalet, ava, chasheka, chafetza, dveikas, is the deepest form of human expression, the deepest love, the deepest connectivity, the deepest attachment. That's exactly what Rabbi Akiva wants to manifest and express that type of leadership that Hamar and Shechem desperately need. And Rabbi Akiva, inside of them, will ultimately one day bring it out. You'll see in the second to the last source, there's a medrash, Rabbi Akiva quotes a Pasuk in Mishle, Im navalta bihisnase. If you become this, what does navalta bihisnase mean? Says the medrash, Rabbi Akiva says, Migaram l'choli snabel what allowed you to become a manuval in Torah? You became arrogant through it. When a person uses Torah or religion as a tool of, of, of oppression, of haughtiness, of holier than thou, of I'm the only one who knows, everyone else is inferior, he says, I become degenerate from it. I become navalta. I become spiritually grotesque. You're using, you're using diamonds, you're using divine energy as a source of, of, of manipulation, of exploitation. Rabbi Akiva says, Navalta bisnase. The Gemara says in Tainus, in the last source, that Rabbi Eliezer went to Davin. There was no rain. And he said, 24 blessings, there was no rain. Rabbi Akiva stood up. Rabbi Akiva said that one famous line that he composed, and we say it till today, Avinu malkeinu, ein lanu melech ela ato. Avinu malkeinu, leman charachem aleinu, and rain came down. This was Rabbi Akiva who gets up and he says those words, Avinu Malkeinu Elano Melech So the Gemara says, the rabbi started to say, what's with Rabbi Eliezer? Rabbi Eliezer was the Rebbe of Rabbi Akiva, and he said all these 24 blessings and nothing happened. And then Rabbi Akiva gets up, boom, it's raining. So the Gemara says, Yatsas Abaskal, Abaskal came out and said, it doesn't mean Rabbi Akiva is greater than Rabbi Eliezer. Elashazem Mavir al Rabbi Akiva was a person where there was no ego, there was no vanity. There were no grudges, there was no negativity. It was a person who was filled with love, with, with generosity, with kindness. So therefore, Rabbi Akiva got up and said, Ein lano and had a completely, 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 completely different impact. So therefore, so now, at last, the, the, the story comes together. <coughs> Excuse me, the story comes together. In fact, we see the Gemara says when Rabbi Akiva wanted to learn, he went to a Malamatinoikis. He was 40 years old. Imagine a four year, imagine you have a 40 year old husband who's a brilliant, brilliant person, but simply never. So he goes in, he doesn't hire a tutor. Yeah? He doesn't hire a tutor or sit with earphones on the internet. He basically goes into a cheder and sits down, the Medrash says, with a Malamatinoikis. He sits down in Kita Aleph, Kita Bays, pre 1A, with his child. Yeah? You're not talking about a two year, a five year old boy. He sat down, and then he skipped classes because he was doing well. But it shows you, it shows you the character of Rabbi Akiva, just like Avram Avinu runs to the ox with that innocence, with that passion, without the, 
without the without any ears about him, Rabbi Akiva possesses the same exact quality because <coughs> because again his tremendous charisma and strength he really understood it was a manifestation of Hashem's light through him, and therefore it becomes it becomes a privilege it becomes an opportunity to be able to help to be able to to illuminate to be able to to uplift people, and that's why. Avinu Malkeinu are the words of Rabbi Akiva. That's Yada Shar I know my master. Avinu Malkeinu. In fact, Avinu Malkeinu, Chatanu Lefanecha, which we say in the beginning of Avinu Malkeinu, is the gematria of Rabbi Akiva. Because it's the numerical value, because he's the one who composed that prayer when he said Avinu Malkeinu. That's what's brought in the name of Rabbi Shmuel HaChassid. So Rabbi Akiva becomes the Neshama of Shechem that has to be liberated at that moment. And Hashem says, Kum he is the one who fixes all the S's. What does the word S mean? The word S, we don't have in English. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Respect your father and your mother. How do you say kabid S avicha? We don't have it in English. Because it doesn't make sense in English. Respect the, your father. Respect the, your mother. So in Chazal, we say S avicha means respect your brother. S, S, imecha, respect your older sister. Is not just the heavens, all the planets. Esa Aretz is everything that came with earth. It says when a person goes to a mikveh, I should bathe my whole flesh. S, what's S? So it says even the here, because the here is not part of my flesh. Essentially I could cut it off, but even the here has to be in the mikveh. Because it says S. So S always represents in Hebrew something that's not part of the thing itself. It's like subservient, it's secondary. Like here to the body. Like my brother, my sister, it's not my father and mother. It's called tafel. Es ha tafel Es Hashem alakech atira, l'rabbis Why do Rabbi Akiva say? Because a real Talmud Chacham is an S. What was Rabbi Akiva's chiddush here? Rabbi Akiva's chiddush here is, <coughs> Rabbi Akiva revealed the Nakuda of S. What's the Nakuda of S? The whole world is a derivative, is an S to Hashem's oneness. S means, like my here is attached to me, it's connected to me, it's not separate. Rabbi Akiva showed that everything is one. So when I have power, when I have charisma, when I have talent, when I have skill, I have personality, every person in their own way, essentially its greatest power is when it becomes an S, when it becomes a conduit, when it becomes a conduit, S Hashem Alekechatira. To express infinity, that's where it reaches its ultimate power, its ultimate strength. On the contrary, when you detach it, you weaken it. Because then it becomes its own selfish, arrogant thing and it always needs to be fed more and more and more and more because it's like a bottomless pit of vanity rather when it's aligned with its source. So Rabbi Akiva darshaned every S and he showed that a real Talmud Chacham means someone who has no ego. If somebody has no ego, then you can have Yira like you have Yira Hashem. Shimon Amsoyni didn't want to say that you have to fear Talmud Chacham. It's too dangerous. It's not good to say to fear people. Fear Hashem. Rabbi Akiva said, Because for Rabbi Akiva, Talmud Chacham is somebody who doesn't have an ego. If you don't have an ego, so then who is a real Talmud Chacham? Somebody who's a complete servant of Hashem. So I'm not fearing the person. I'm fearing Hashem. Because if a person sees themselves truly as just a conduit for Hashem, so then my fear, my awe of this person is not deification of arrogance, where suddenly a person becomes a deity that's very, very dangerous in Judaism. 
Rather, the person is called a Talmud Chacham, not a Chacham. A Chacham is, I'm a Chacham. A Talmud Chacham means I'm a student of wisdom, always a student. A student means that I see myself simply as a humble servant. So Rabbi Akiva says, Hashem alakech l'rabbis tamadich hachamim. So when Yaakov, the Medrash is saying, when Yaakov told Chamer, you're a big, powerful guy, but we're not ready yet. You have her an ox, and we have her a donkey. <laughs> and the, the, the ox knows the master. The donkey knows the trough. One day, Rabbi Akiva will come out of this. And Dina will go through her journeys. And then ultimately, you'll be able to have the tikkun, the synthesis of the two. And that's why in the beginning of the parsha, when Yaakov sends a message to Esav, his words are, I went by Yishlach Yaakov Malachim, and he tells Esav a message, <coughs> and he says something strange, right in the beginning of Yishlach, his words to Esav are, his message to Esav is, I, I lived by Lavan, Vayihili, Shoir, Vachamar. That's how it starts. I had an ox and a donkey. And now she says, really, for 20 years, you just got one ox and one donkey? Right? She says, it doesn't mean the singular. It's a, it means many. But it's just said. It's an expression. So you look in the Medrash. He says, Who's going to come on a donkey? What's the gear to Esav? What Esav now has to know how Mashiach is going to come on a donkey? <laughs> But this is really Vahili Sherva Chamar. It's going to come out later in the parsha. Shem and Chamar, Chamar. Yaakov Avinu is from Avram and he's a Shor. Vahili Sherva Chamar. Ultimately, the healing is the synthesis. Just like Rabbi Akiva was hidden in Chamar. Because really there's no separation. The Chamar comes from the word Chaymer. Chaymer means material. Chamar comes from the word Chaymer. The Maral says the physical on its own doesn't recognize the oneness of the world, doesn't recognize Einoid Mulvada. Mashiach is going to be Ani Vereichiv Allah Chamar. He's going to come on a donkey, not on an ox. Why is Mashiach going to come on a donkey? What's wrong with a BMW? No big rabbi I know today is going to go on a donkey. It's a pasnisht. <laughs> At least a comfortable car, if possible, leather seats. Nobody can afford anything from Mashiach. You want to come on an animal? Fine. Come on a horse, you know. Come on a horse. Come on a camel. <laughs> a chamar is, uh, the Bedouins go on a chamar. Go to the Middle East, you'll see. But that's really, first of all, there's an element of humility in chamar on another level. But the truth is, chamar comes with the word chamar. The Kiddush of the Geula is that the chamar, the material, is going to bespeak the truth of Hashem. So once the chamar becomes elevated, now you have the synthesis of Shair and chamar. Shair is Yosef HaTzadik, who married Dina's daughter. Chamar is Melech Mebeis David, who's going to come on a chamar. <coughs> so you have the synthesis of the two, that Yaakov was telling Esau, after all these years, we're ready for the sublimation and the synthesis between the two, that every aspect of existence, both the ox and the donkey, should ultimately be able to be united in the recognition of oneness. And as it plays itself out, though, in history, ultimately Rabbi Akiva, embedded in the heart and the soul of Shechem, the son of Chamar, would bring out this koyach of Yotzah Nafshei Be'echad to reveal the ultimate oneness in the world. Everybody have a wonderful week. Just uh, uh, an important announcement. An important announcement, just two things. First of all, for the next few weeks, I'm not here, I'm going to Eretz Yisrael. So for three weeks, huh? Yeah, so Hindi, we, we have a rain check for four weeks. Okay, you have a break for me for three weeks. 
next week take the fan club to, uh, I don't want to say a better place, but uh, another place. Ah, Etzisol is good. I'm speaking, yeah. I'm going Sunday night. So for, for so please just tell your friends or relatives who come. For the next three Tuesdays, we want to have a class. That includes Hanukkah. And then next week, there's no. And the week after is Hanukkah, and there's no class that week. And the week after is a day after Hanukkah, there's no class. I'm actually coming back that day. I don't think I'll make it back from the airport. The second thing I wanted to say is that this Mitzray Shabbos, in honor of Yat Kislev, which is the 250th yard set of the Magad of Mizrich and the Chagagul of the Balatanya, there'll be a big Malava Malka here for men and women with a Mechitz. Everybody is invited, or you can watch the live stream if you wish on the yeshiva.net. That did Mitzray Shabbos 7.30. Please tell your husbands or boys and have a beautiful week and a wonderful day and a Freilich Echoidish and a Freilich Echanaka and Atzlach and everything. Yeah. We also learn from here, we also learn from that, uh, you know, sometimes a person gets abducted, so to speak, on one level or another, but something happens beyond our knowledge, you know? We have to realize that. Also, it's, it's very interesting, because as I'm listening to all these different you're thinking to yourself that, you know what, like all these people, and, and we have the three rechashas, but on the other hand, you're seeing how that's Yes, exactly. And when Dina, Dina on one level is abducted, on the other level, she takes something from the abductor. She takes back the soul of Rabbi Akiva. So sometimes I feel I'm just a victim of somebody else's crazy choices. But in that process, in that relationship, I'm getting something that's priceless. When Dina was together with Shem, he didn't know. He gave her the soul of Rabbi Akiva. And that remained with her. And that goes out with her. So it's a whole... In life, you know, I think I was physically or emotionally abducted and chas v'shalem, who knows what happens sometimes people's lives and yet they gave but they also when I could have the courage to face it with dignity right? it doesn't exonerate the, the criminal at all but it just tells me I wasn't just a victim there was something that I got here with which I can light up the world Rabbi Akiva changed the whole world and that's what Dina got from Shechem so her worst moment also became an incredibly powerful moment. She kept him. Yeah. Okay, you, don't you don't see it. And here's an example of yeah. seeing this. Dina remained trapped in the palace, in, in the palace. until they killed Shem and they took Dina. It says clearly. She gave birth. She gave birth to Asnas. Asnas had a hard time in the family. Yaakov sent her to Egypt. In Egypt, she married Yosef. The Kameya, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It says in Medrash that Asnas married Yosef. Asnas was a daughter of Dina, and her father was not Jewish. Dina never came back to the family. Dina did. Her daughter, Asnas, left. Ah, the daughter left. The daughter of Dina left, not Dina herself. Dina came back. Oh, well, a lot of drama. Every family has a lot of drama. Every family I know has a lot of drama. The only families I know that don't have drama are the families I don't know. You basically explain why our generation doesn't mingle. They're not as self-centered as you think they are. They're not as self-centered as you think they are. Just much more. No. <laughs> no. No, they just have a, you know what? There's I'll stop playing with you, obviously. In this world right now, there's a lot of pain, a lot of pain, a lot of pain. A lot of pain.
There was the same level of pain in our generation. But you repressed it much more. No. You didn't repress it. We grew up. Didn't have parents or God. I am a big cute. fan of this generation. I'm sorry. I know that. See, that's it. That's what he's trying to teach us. <laughs> you know who else is a big fan of this generation? Hashem. You know how I know? Because he gave them to us. You got to change the paradigm. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.